Hello, my Krobegal Nation, and welcome to part two of Penicillin. John, are you ready for this? I'm so ready to continue the story. What's your favorite part so far? Actually, I like the fact that I learned about lysozymes because, you know, we always hear about him dis discovering penicillium on a plate, but it's nice to hear something new. Yeah, he's done so many things. If you have no idea what we're talking about, we have a part one of the penicillin story, which is all about the upbringing and the stardom of Alexander Fleming. In today's talk, we're going to continue on this story and bring you part two of the epic story of penicillin, which gets really crazy, and I'm so excited to share this stuff with you guys. So without further ado, let us continue on with our story of Flory. Let's do it. So Boris Chain was a second-generation chemist who was involved with isolating penicillin. He was a Russian-German-Jewish descendant, and he decided to get out of Britain in 1933, before the Nazis came. I mean, this was good foresight, obviously. He was smart, and he moved to England, and unfortunately leaving his mother and sister behind. Chain was a man of many talents, and when it came to picking his career track in England, he was waffling between scientist and professional pianist, which are two vastly different fields. But both fields I could go, well, I couldn't go into either one, but both fields I've dappled in. Right. And obviously, he went with scientists. He was lucky as he was brilliant because his abrasive and poor attitude made it hard for him to be hired. Co-workers hated him. And he often complained how terrible London equipment was compared to the prestige labs they had in Germany. <laughs> I can totally see that. How annoying could that be? I mean, I know like German engineering was the top of the line back then, but still. We all know one of those lab mates. Ernest worked with Hopkins, uh, Foy's mentor, for two years between 33 and 35. However, Hopkins grew tired of Ernest's uh, behavior, and he remembers how much of a challenge Flory liked and how he wanted a diverse group. This resulted in Hopkins convincing Howard Flory to hire Ernest Chain. That's kind of rude. Like, hey, you like a challenge? You want diversity? Take this pain in the neck off my back. Thanks. Yeah, so was it like... Sincerely, your old mentor. Was it like, oh, this guy, you know, he's really smart. You know who would be good for him? Or is it more like, I got to get this guy off my hands? I mean, I think it was... A little bit of both? A little bit of both. So, Lori took him under his wing. And they were going through a stack of old papers in Oxford one day. And they saw uh, Fleming's research. And they saw that there was value in Fleming's fungal strain. Yeah, so actually, he was... he. They narrowed it down to three different potential bactericidal agents. So they narrowed it down to penicillin, which was Alexander Fleming's work, pyocyanase, which came from Pseudomonas pyocyanase, and Bacillus subtilis as a bactericidal agent. And so he tested one, the pyocyanase, and discovered it was toxic to animals. <clears throat> That's not going to work. That's no good. Right. So he moved on to one of the other two. 
And one of the reasons why he went with penicillin was because Dreyer, if you remember him, he was the predecessor of Flory as the pathologist. He was a friend of Alexander Fleming. So he had a strain of Alexander Fleming's penicillin in Oxford. So they're like, well, that's easy. Let's try that. So again, this is just like so many coincidences like that just came about to get us to this point of discovering penicillin. So he did a couple initial trials and Chain was hooked and he hooked Flory as well. And so Chain wrote the Secretary of Medical Research Council, Edward Malamby, who was the guy who just reversed the decision to put Howard Flory in power. So Chain wrote him and was like, hey, can I get 100 pounds to continue this project I'm really excited about? And Edward Mellenby was like, it's a cool project, kid, but, uh, you know, here's 25 pounds and um, you can you can start forming a team. She's like, 25 pounds? <laughs> what do you even do with 25 pounds? What is that, like four chocolate bars? What are you doing with 100 pounds? Yeah, I mean, that's true, too. I don't know what science you can do with 25 or 100 pounds, but damn. So... The team that Chain and Flory put together consisted of N.G. Heatley, A.G. Sanders, A.D. Gardner, Miss Or Ewing, Ernest Chain, of course, Howard Flory, of course, the literary expert Jim Kent, and Dr. Margaret Jennings. So in 1939, London wasn't really apt to provide research funding. I mean, we're on the eve of World War II and all. So Flory, who again won that award to go to America a few years before, decided to leverage his American comrades and flew to the U.S. In November, he asked if he could have 1,670 pounds for three years to support his team. The Americans were like, sure. In fact, here's funding for five years. Obviously, Flory and Shane were like, yes. They were so stoked. They had funding. They could do the thing. They're going to do the thing, John. They're doing it. So Heatley was part of the team. He was quick to find ways to extract penicillin and supply the crude product to the bacteriologist and the biochemist, who is Chain. So while Chain worked on purifying the, the penicillin, he decided he was going to conduct the famous mouse experiment. And on May 25th, 1940, becomes the first time that they're extracting and using a crude penicillin product in order to test against mice. So this is a quick rundown of how the experiment went. 11 a.m., Flory injected eight mice with 100 million virulent streptococci. This is enough bacteria to kill the mice. At 12 p.m., so this is one hour later, he took half the mice. So two mice were injected with 10 milligrams of penicillin, and two mice were injected with 5 milligrams of penicillin, and then injected four more times throughout the day. And then they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And it was 3.30 a.m. before Heatley went home. Because at 3.30 a.m., what he noticed where the control mice died. And the treated mice, well, they were doing all right. This was so exciting. This not only said that penicillin was not toxic to mammals, but could potentially be a viable therapeutic option against some of the most infectious diseases faced by man. 
And in 1940, they published the paper in the Lancet on the 24th of August in 1940. I'm like almost convinced the Lancet was like the only journal of the time because like every single one of these papers are published in the Lancet. I mean, it's one of the highest prestige. I think it's also like the oldest medical journal or research journal out there. Yeah, InfoShower is old. But now all I know is is the, the demon journal that published the paper. We don't talk about that paper. But they published on August 24th, 1940, penicillin as a chemotherapeutic agent with authors E. Chain, H.W. Flory, A.D. Gardner, N.G. Heatley, M.A. Jennings, J.R. Ewing, and A.G. Sanders. So I just like that because there are two female scientists in there. I didn't get the chance to look into them very much, but I'm curious to see what their whole take on this whole thing is. Because we do talk about just one female researcher, and she has a little jaded of a past. But those two, those two have got to have had a, a much bigger handle on this whole thing since they were published in that paper. Right. But we have a problem. Do you know what the problem is, John? Mm, I think I do. What's the problem? The thing is, we can grow all of these penicillium. However, it takes a massive amount to make such a small amount of penicillin. Exactly. Moving from mice to men is huge. And it's not of mice and men. It is not of mice and men, but from mice to men. But when they published the paper, they had two reactions, which I think are a little funny. The first is Melanby, the guy who rejected them for their 100-pound grant, was annoyed that Flory would acknowledge the Americans who did fund the research as a source without acknowledging him. It's like, bro, we tried to come to you to get some money, and you're all like, GTFO. Yeah, I mean, you got to mention where your source of funding comes from, and if you're not given any funding, you ain't getting sourced. Yeah, that faux show is not Flory's fault. Mm -hmm. You could have given money. Americans gave him money. Whatever, Malambi. Anyways, the other thing is like it came onto Fleming's desk and he was like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. I'll just like pop on over to Oxford and be like, hey, what you doing with my penicillin strain? <laughs> and then Chain was like, wait, he's still alive? Wait, these guys didn't even know Fleming was alive at this point? Yeah, Chain thought he died. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, yeah, so this was the first encounter of Fleming and Flory and Shane. And from all accounts, like, it's, it's I mean, it's obviously really hard to tell kind of what the relationship was because I don't think they had a super relationship. But they obviously had some sort of connection with each other. And it didn't seem, I mean, it, and it's also, Fleming is not one to really seem to get agitated, but he also uses very terse words that can definitely be interpreted as, angry so mm -hmm. I, I think that's kind of a hard dynamic to figure out but i thought that was kind of interesting and then you have to remember that this is going on during world war ii in england like they're getting bombed all the time by 1940 most of saint mary's staff were moved to harefield to escape the bombings of the of the war and fleming was like yeah yeah i'll totally go to hayfield just let me finish this thing and then he was like oh, just let me finish the thing and he actually, like, stayed at St. Mary's Hospital throughout the war, despite all the bombings and everyone like, hey, bro, you should probably move. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm about to. I'm going to do that thing. Which I just, like, I don't know. I just think it's so, like, you can, 
look at this in a vacuum be like okay penicillin was discovered by alexander Fleming in a lab but then to like just think about it like this is happening while this war is going on this is happening i mean the 1918 flu wasn't that far ago these are people that lived through world war one and saw the horrors of infectious diseases on soldiers and on wounds and everything and now they're here again in world war ii and they're still like yeah let me do my science that's incredible amazing yeah I and mean, most people are like i'm just trying not to die or i i'm thinking about like my family on the front line yeah, so yeah, it's, I don't know, it's crazy. So back to Flory. He had this problem of moving from mice to men. He estimated that the current rate, they would need 500 liters of mold filtrate per week for several months to get enough to treat five to six patients. He needed a factory. And this is where Heatley, the bedpan man, comes in. So Heatley began growing mold in everything, flasks flat-sided bottles, petrol cans, biscuit tins, but nothing worked quite as well as hospital bedpans. And in comes the penicillin girls, tasked with growing and maintaining the penicillin cultures and keeping a sterile environment, which I just think is like, what? How do you grow all this stuff in all these different containers with all these different people and keep it sterile? I don't know, man. Like, that. You look at a bedpan, it's like, what are you putting over that to keep it sterile? It's incredible. That is for sure another one of those coinky dings. And I'm like, yeah, this whole thing should have got contaminated. All the penicillin should have been lost. And like, they all just cut their losses because that was a lot of expenses and resources. But somehow, somehow it worked. So it was time to test the penicillin in people. And so on February 12th was the first clinical trial of penicillin. And they went over to Radcliffe Hospital to look for a patient that might work. So they needed a patient that was obviously on the verge of death. They didn't want to give this to someone who was healing or was going to get better. But someone who was already sort of doomed to death, well, that's, you know, ethically a great zone. Right? Right. Yeah. At least back then. You you see that nowadays, especially with, like, chemotherapeutic drugs, too. Yeah, or, like, phage therapy right now. It's kind of like, we don't have any other options. We can try this. Um, although now there's a lot more that has to go into consent than what had to go in the 1940s. At any rate, it was the policeman Albert Alexander, who was 43 at the time. He was in his garden one day when he got a scratch by the rosebush. The scratch quickly turned into an infectious disease of a dual infection of strep and staph. And eventually it traveled to his eyes. For two months, he battled the infection, frequently having abscesses drained. And, of course, a copious amount of sulfamide. Sulfamide. Sulfamides? Yes. Uh, That just sounds like a terrible two months. Yeah, I mean, the sulfamides didn't really help, right? No. So, Flory comes in and was like, hey, what if we inoculate him with some penicillin? We can see if it works. We know that it works in, vi- in, in vitro on the plates against strep and staph. And the doctors are like, yeah, let's give it a shot. So, on February 3rd, they removed the constable's left eye. And he was progressively getting worse and worse. And then on February 12th, in 1941, Flory injected him with penicillin. Within 24 hours, Albert's fever broke. His appetite returned. His eye grew back. 
Okay, his eye didn't grow back, but he was definitely healing and penicillin was working. And because penicillin was removed from the body via urine, they just collected up that pee, re-extracted the penicillin, and shot it back into him. No, that's what I call efficiency. Mm-hmm. So with Albert in recovery, they were like, okay, let's try it on patient number two. And they went to a 15-year-old boy who was also doomed to die. And so they started treating the boy. But suddenly, Albert's recovery reversed. His temperature skyrocketed, and his face grew inflamed again. Quick, get this man another dose of penicillin! But there was none left. Five days of penicillin treatment was not enough to eliminate the pathogenic staphylococcus. Albert died on March 15th, 1941. That's so unfortunate. Like, you start to get better, and all of a sudden it just switches back. Oh, I couldn't imagine trying to help someone and see them, like, getting closer and closer to success and then just watching them digress and knowing like, I know if we just did this a little bit more, if we just had a little bit more, we could save your life. But just being like, we don't have it. Like, I know how to save you, but I can't. The guilt that's involved with that. Oh, I can't even imagine. So it became pretty clear to Florian Heatley that they needed to produce a lot more penicillin at a much higher scale. And so who better to ask but the Americans? But first, I just want to jump back to a second to Fleming working in the hospital during all the bombings. His house was actually bombed not once, but twice. Was he there for the bombings? So one of them, he... No, I think one of them, his family was there, but he was not. And all of his family survived. And the other one, I think they were out getting dinner when his place got bombed, which is like, Alec Fleming, oh my God, you are one lucky SOB. In the sciences, in life, I don't know what sort of guardian angel you have, but man, I want one. I want what he's having. His family were afterwards were like, yeah, we're going to the countryside for the rest of the war. <laughs> no, yeah, I think they just, you know, stayed there. Oh, man. So Florian Heatley flew to America to work at a large fermentation laboratory at Peoria, Illinois, to work with Dr. A.J. Moyer. Now, Heatley stayed in America to work with the Americans on the production of the penicillin, while Flory had to fly back to Oxford to manage his labs. And I think there was some sort of initial kind of verbal dealing, like, hey, Americans, we're the Brits. We're both allied forces. Let's work together on this. You guys can mass produce stuff. And like we found it. So like let's work together. And the Americans were like, that's cool. Thanks. Bye. And then when like Flory left, they're like, we're going to keep this all for Americans. And y'all can figure out what you're doing. So Flory needed to reaccelerate the British production like ASAP because he basically just gave away all the stuff to the Americans, which had, you know, all the fermentation products that they needed to create mass produce this whole thing. And in 1943, Fleming also jumped back on the penicillin train. He had a patient that had an infection, and he actually asked Flory to get an extract to receive some penicillin, so the crude product of his penicillium fungus, to treat the patient. And the patient survived, and Fleming and Flory both published a paper that year highlighting their clinical success and thanking the other. Aww. That's so nice. That's so cute. So back in America, I know this part, we kind of like jump back and forth, but you know, a lot of things are going on during the war years. 
now that everyone's got penicillin. In March 1942, Mrs. Ogden Miller was the first American clinically treated with penicillin produced in America. So Mrs. Ogden Miller was associated with one of the higher-up universities, so she was obviously... Um, you know, kind of high, high up on, on the priority list. She had had a miscarriage, which is unfortunate. And, you know, to add insult to injury, she also got a, an infection from the miscarriage and she was about to die. So the good news is that, that she survived um, because she got treated with penicillin. So, of course, newspapers went ecstatic about this. They were so excited. They're like, all we've been reporting about is, like, dead young boys in Europe, like, for the past four years. Or maybe it's, like, only a year or something that America's been in the war. But they have had nothing really good to promote, and they need something good. So the newspapers went rampant with these over-hyperbolized stories about snatch from death by the miracle drug. And this really excited the Americans. Finally, there is a way to overcome infectious diseases. And I thought this was sort of a fun fact. So there were three companies that were leading the penicillin production in America. Can you guess what they were? No, I actually wasn't aware that there was three different companies doing it. Yeah, I'll give you a hint. (laughs) They've been in the news recently. Pfizer? Yes. Johnson & Johnson? No. I don't know if you'll get the other two, but Pfizer's definitely been in the news um, recently, and they were part of penicillin production way back in the 1940s. The other two are Squibb and Merck, which are, um, Merck is definitely still around today. Yeah. So, and here's a couple other fun facts about American production of penicillin. In June 1943, the U.S. produced 425 million units per month, which was enough to treat 170 cases. By June 6, 1944, this is D-Day for World War II, USA was producing 100,000 million units per month, which was enough to treat 40,000 cases. By June 1945, so sort of towards the end, at the end of the war, there was 646,000 million units per month being treated, which is enough to treat a quarter of a million people. Wow. What a difference. Two years. Those those factories you can just start pumping it out like that so let's let's fly back over to britain let's hop hop across the pond here and it was discovered this is another kind of fun side story of world war ii so it was discovered that penicillin could cure gonorrhea Perfect for the uh, wartime. Yeah, so like a lot. So gonorrhea is a sexually transmitted disease. It's part of the venereal disease, which a lot of soldiers were getting because reasons. And so the military kind of had this decision and they're like, well, do we save the penicillin that we have for the wounded? Or do we help the scallywags with gonorrhea? I, w- I want to say, too, that during this time, they had, like, anti-STD propaganda for the soldiers, and they were not painting women in a good light. In oh, these. for sure, no. They were definitely painting women as the reason why all the soldiers were getting STDs. Mm-hmm, yeah. But in the meantime, those boys couldn't keep it in their pants. It's always the women's fault. Never mm. the man to blame on this one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So th- so they had this decision to make, right? Like, do they do, they're like, the moral thing is to protect 
you know, to, to treat the soldiers that have the wounds that die as war heroes so they don't die as war heroes, right? Not to treat the scallywags sleeping around the countries. But there's a lot of people that had gonorrhea, and if you could get them back into the fields, get them out of the hospital beds, I mean, that's going to do a lot. There are a lot more people. There were, I mean, tons of people with gonorrhea or syphilis or any of the venereal diseases. And so the head of the army wrote a letter to Churchill and asked, what, what should they do? You know what Churchill said? Oh, it had to be something good because he had great quotes. Well, this is not like that great of a quote. It's very, it's very ambiguous. He says, the valuable drug must on no account be wasted. It must be used to the best military advantage. So the military took that as they should treat penicillin. They should give penicillin to the soldiers with gonorrhea, which I just think is kind of funny because it's like this super vague statement that kind of changed a great course in the war. Yeah. So as we move out of the war years, Fleming becomes a celebrity. He finally, at the age of 62, joins the Royal Society. He has won a number of awards, including knighthood. So he becomes a sir, which, like, everyone seems to be a sir at this time. Like, all the scientists, like, there's Sir Almuth Wright and Sir Alexander Fleming and Sir Howard Florey. Like, they're all sirs. I want to be a sir. Queen Elizabeth, call me up. What you doing? Let's have some tea. Let's have some tea. Talk about science. But at 1944, they did not award a Nobel Prize for medicine. It would be 1945 when Alexander Fleming, Chain, and Flory would all receive the Nobel Prize in 1945. Now, I don't really understand why Heatley was not part of this award ceremony because he was very influential in creating the production. Chain was kind of mad that Fleming was on this whole thing because, I mean, did he really even discover it? It was just sort of an oops baby that he called his. I don't really know. I mean, without his initial work, there would have been no penicillin. But, I mean, penicillin existed before. I guess, yeah, you're right. Those stories did show that it did exist. Yeah, so I, th- I just think that's super interesting how he kind of goes down as the person who discovered penicillin, but it really would not have happened without Flory and without Chain extracting the penicillin and without Dreyer dying at the perfect times so that Flory could take over the pathology part and without Sir Alexander Fleming staying at St. Mary's for 51 years under Sir Almuth Wright. Like, it's just so many things where you're like, wow, this is the perfect storm of success. So... The war ended and science advances were more easily shared in 1945. So everyone in the world got to wreak the benefits of penicillin. And in America, I want to just tell one more story. I think it's just one more story about America, particularly with one female named Mary Hunt, or often called Moldy Mary. Right. So this one's a little hard because there's no like concrete evidence of who she was or exactly how the story went. But from a couple of accounts, they uh, pieced together that it was this person, Mary Hunt. So it was said that she went to medical school for bacteriology, and she went for nursing for a little while as well. But she worked in the same um, research lab where penicillin research was being done in the U.S. And so she was tasked with finding a new species of penicillin. This was because Fleming's uh, strain... It made penicillin, but like we said, it was taking a ridiculous amount to make, to grow, to make a treatment for just one person. Well, she finds it. 
And where do you think she finds this mold? In a grocery store. Specifically cantaloupe. I wonder, like, if back then, like, how much moldy fruit was actually on the shelves. You know, I don't know. I, I feel like they had a much bigger tolerance for moldy fruit than we do. Because I'm like, um, that apple's bruised. I can't even eat it. Well, too, like, the war was happening. So people, you know. It, they eat anything? They, yeah, if you think about it. Like, if there was food there, like, yeah, I'm going to eat it. Yeah, that's a good point. And so she took this kennel back to the lab. And it was isolated as penicillium chrysogenum. And this actually produced penicillin 200 times more than the strain that Fleming originally found. Wow, 200? Yeah. That's huge. So, like, instead of 2,000 liters for one person, now you're down to 10. That is a lot more manageable. Wow. And so now you're able to really mass-produce penicillin to treat all these soldiers so without her finding this it's it's questionable about how many soldiers could actually have been treated during world war ii mm-hmm. didn't they also do um some x-rays and stuff to make it even more potent yeah i think they blasted it with uh uh radiation like you said like x-rays and it even further increased the amount of penicillin it output so not only did they find this that this strain that was producing at a ridiculous level. They supercharged it. Mm, cool. Mutants for the win. All right, so we should finish up a little bit with Alexander Fleming here? I think so. Okay. So I want to share another quote with Alexander Fleming because I think it's, it's kind of funny and, again, kind of attests to his personality. So he became a huge celebrity, and he was running around all over to different various countries and such rubbing elbows with celebrities and presidents and popes and all sorts. And when he was asked what it was like to kind of hang out with these big wigs, he was like, you know, they're just like ordinary folk like you and me. But sometimes they're a bit conceited and then they're not that interesting. (laughs) That's a great statement. He was not impressed by their stardom, that's for sure. Not starstruck. Mm Mm-hmm. So his mentor, Sir Almuth Wright, eventually retired and Fleming took over. And he hired a new apprentice, Dr. Amelia Vareka, who was from Greece. And he would later marry her once his wife died. And there was nothing shady as far as I could tell as far as the relationship. Um, It did seem that his wife died of natural causes from being sick while he was on tour in um, 1949, it would be four years before he married Amelia. So it does seem like he took the appropriate amount of time to grieve uh, before starting a new relationship. Just want to throw that out there. Alexander Fleming died on his bed on March 11th in 1955 of a coronary thrombosis. And now many things bear his name. He won 25 honorary degrees. He had 26 medals, 18 prizes, 13 decorations, the Federation of the the Freedoms of 15 Cities, and an honorary number of 89 academies and societies, which I didn't even know there were 89 academies or societies, but I'm sure there's even more than that now. His name is on buildings, streets, squares, cities, statues, portraits, books, plaques, buildings, research institutions, and Even there is a crater on the moon named after him. Really? Yes. This guy has made his mark in history. You know you're a bigwig when you have a crater on the moon named after you. Hashtag new life goals. (laughs) 
But some of the other characters that we talked about also went on to do other things as well. Like what? Our Ernest continued uh, his work on antibiotics, mm-hmm. and he eventually um, specifically synth- synthetic forms of penicillin after the war. And this resulted in penicillin V and ampicillin. Oh, I've used those before. Yeah. Hmm. I've used them. I've had them. I've had to use them. I grew up with a lot of ear infections. Yeah, me too. Antibiotics were my friend. And Howard, so it's strange because he did not want to patent penicillin. He thought it was something that the uh, world needed. And then the Americans duped him. Yeah, and so the Americans patented it. So he continued research and he discovered uh, cephalosporin. What's cephalosporin? I'm not sure what kind of antibiotic it is. Um, I think it's stronger than penicillin. Don't quote me on that. Mm-hmm. But after the American debacle, he did patent that one. And Norman Heatley, like you said, he didn't receive the Nobel Prize. He did, however, receive an honorary degree from Oxford, which was the first one in 800 years. Wow. And when he died in 2004, he was 92 years old, and he had 60 papers under his belt. Impressive. And a lab named after him at Oxford. Wow. So it seems like everyone from the story went on to do further research to help out humanity. But also, as we close the talk about penicillin, we kind of have to talk about antibiotic resistance. Yeah, tell us about some stats on antibiotic resistance. Well, I'm going to go over quickly, like, so there's three basic types of resistance to penicillin. The most popular one, I think, is uh, beta-lactamase. Now, this is an enzyme that actually breaks down that square ring structure in penicillin, and it is, you know, makes it ineffective. And so this is actually bacteria get through DNA transfer. Specifically, this is something we touched on before, by sharing it from bacteria to bacteria with their sex pili. So you get something that's resistant. Who is that? Esther? Shout out to my girl Esther. I want to say Esther. Yeah, buddy. I think it was her. You know, like bacteria cuddle up and they'll transfer DNA through the sex pili. Mm-hmm. And now that you got a resistant population. If you have no idea what we're talking about, go check out our podcast on Esther Lettenberg or blog post. Right. She was a great female scientist. She's my girl. So the second type is called efflux pumps. Now, there's a bunch of different ones, and they're, they're a type of pump that is found in bacteria, and it rids the cell of toxic chemicals. Mm-hmm. And there's actually different types for antibiotics, but there's some that pump out penicillin and some that pump out multiple types of um, antibiotics. And I think like continued exposure increases the amount of pumps, too. So, yeah, they're getting the antibiotics, but they're just pumping it back out, so it kind of makes it pointless. Mm. And then there are other bacteria, you know, that penicillin-binding protein? Mm-hmm. So they will actually decrease the amount that they produce, or they'll modify it so penicillin no longer affects it. And so, you know, ever since the beginning of uh, the use of antibiotics, we're seeing an increase and antibiotic resistance. So it's kind of like this war now because the bacteria are developing resistance and we're actually developing other chemicals to combat this. And one of them is called beta-lactamase inhibitors. Mm-hmm. And so what do they do? They inhibit that beta-lactamase so that the 
uh, penicillin can affect the microbe. Oh. And they actually describe it as a um, weak antibiotic by itself cannot do anything. But when you combine it with uh, penicillin, there you go. Bam. You got an effective one. Hmm. So you did hint at some stats. So this is from the CDC. Uh, in the U.S., 2.8 million people get antibiotic-resistant infections annually and 35,000 die. Wow. The national cost to treat infections by the top six multidrug-resistant microbes is $4.6 billion a year. The WHO says that we're going to switch over to TB and... What does that mean to switch over to TB? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we're talking about tuberculosis. Uh-huh. Um, so like, like tuberculosis is going to become the next greatest killer of mankind? I don't know, but, you know, there's... I don't know if it's the next greatest killer, but there's a multi-drug-resistant TB that's popping up more and more. Uh-huh. Don't like. Yeah. This is due to a multitude of facts of you're seen in areas where healthcare isn't very good. They get access to some medication. Sometimes it, the medication has a lot of side effects, so they stop taking it, or they can't get the full dose. Mm. So you're, because of that, the bacteria are not getting this constant treatment so they develop a resistance to it and so this is on a rise in in 2018 uh 3.4 new cases of tuberculosis were multidrug resistant and less than 60 percent of those were successfully cured wow yeah that's scary mm-hmm. and between 2000 and 2015 saw an increase in 26.2 percent 26? In cases, yeah, multi-drug resistant per capita. Oh my God, we're all going to die. And last but not least is more about like what we should be doing about treating infections with antibiotics. So we know that we're over-prescribing. And so the CDC has seen that 30% of antibiotic prescriptions were unnecessary. 30%? 30. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This one, it's, I don't, you know. I know they can determine, it's a little hard to say, but like nearly 70% of antibiotic uh, courses for sinus infections were longer than recommended. And that other treatments were also determined to be too long. Mm. Now that one I can see a little bit more understandable because, you know, there's such an emphasis on you need to treat, do a full course of antibiotics. Right, like what we saw, it's five days was not enough for... Um... Right. So, like, what do, you, what do you do? Do you extend it too far? Like, how do you know exactly is the right dose mm. or the right length of time? So, this brings, you know, other things like you're, you're messing with your own microbiome. And, you know, this can lead to other side effects, not just, like, uh, resistance or just overuse, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I thought those were some interesting um, statistics. Oh, definitely. So, I have a couple bones to pick. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Okay. So, when you hear this story, it has a lot of really bizarre moments, and it has a lot of absurd things in it. And so, I I just want to, like, have this little discussion with you, John, about three various issues that I have with the story that was presented here. What are those? Okay, first, let's talk about the discovery of penicillin. So, supposedly, he seeded a plate with a bacteria and left it on his bench, right? Right. 
And then fungus came in. Right. So it wouldn't create a zone of inhibition. The bacteria would grow. I mean, yeah, if the bacteria were faster, yeah, they would have uh, or overtaken. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, so the, the whole thing is, like, which came first, the fungus or the bacteria? If the bacteria was there first, it would have grown, and it wouldn't really matter if the fungus came in inhibited if the bacteria was already ahead and growing on the surface. Right. I mean, it would have killed the bacteria, but you still would have seen it on the plate. Yeah, it would still be there. So then you, you have to say, okay, well, now for the length of time that he was gone, if he seeded the bacteria, then it had to be so cold that the bacteria wouldn't grow and the fungus came in and started growing. And then the bacteria grew up afterwards when the temperature got warmer. And then you had the reaction that you had. Right. That's so many more accidents and coincidences. I mean, the story is full of them. So I guess we can, we can say that maybe that's what happened, but. I mean, I guess theoretically, because, you know, I'm this was what, like at his bench, and I'm sure like they didn't have air conditioning, so it wasn't exactly a regulated environment, but yeah, yeah, still, you're adding more and more coincidences. on. Yeah, and it just gets more and more improbable, which kind of brings us to the next thing. So if the, it was hot and they didn't have ventilation or AC, maybe they opened the window. So like, where did this fungus come from? Was it just like... It's obviously a rare variant because they tried a number of other penicillins and they never were as antibiotic um, effective as this one that Fleming found. And so I, th- I feel like the, the most logical thing is you have this mycologist who's downstairs working. Was it his strain? And then you're like, but could it be because he was a, you know, a pretty famous mycologist and he didn't identify the right as in... Mm-hmm. So how could he, he labeled it wrong? So I feel like it didn't, it probably didn't come to, from his lab because it seems like he never saw it before. So he didn't have the strain of penicillin? Well, so he was the one who ID'd the penicillin strain oh. as a penicillium robrum. He okay. didn't identify it correctly. Okay. But he was tasked with identifying it. All right. So if it was part of his collection, part of the ones that he was using, would he not be able to be like, oh yeah, like that's this one? Yeah, right. I agree completely. So I think that's a little weird too. And so like did it just float in from the air through a window or did did it come from outside or was it some sort of mutant from this lab that changed the morphology so that this mycologist couldn't identify the microbe? Theoretically, yes, but now it's coincidence on top of coincidence on top of coincidence. Yeah, (laughs) there's so many coincidences. I just, like, I cannot figure, I cannot wrap my head around how improbable this whole thing was. And then, like, the other thing that kind of bugs me with this whole thing is that Alexander Fleming became a celebrity. Yeah, like, he did some of the initial research and published, but there was, like, other people that touted a lot of the work, like... Chain and Flory and yeah. Heatley and... Yeah, you know, they're the ones that actually isolated penicillin. Yeah, and pushed for it to get mass produced. Right. And so, but they're like completely forgotten from the historical record. Like everyone's like, oh yeah, Alexander Fleming. Like if you know anything about the history of penicillin, Alexander Fleming comes up. But then like there's all these other people that also had their hands in it and we like never talk about them. We don't talk about Flory and Chain and Alexander Fleming as the people who won the Nobel Prize for discovering penicillin. We just talk about Alexander Fleming. So- 
I dug a little bit deeper to try to figure out why this could be. And per usual, it has to do with the media. So from what I could tell is that there was this article that came out in the Times and it originally named no one as the discoverer of penicillin. They're like, hey, penicillin, this is maybe cool. could be a potential therapeutic drug. But it didn't name a scientist or a group or anything. And so Sir Almuth Wright, being the great mentor that he was, wrote to them and was like, hey, you know, this per- this penicillin that you're touting about, this was actually done by Alexander Fleming. You should probably put his name in the article. And then from there, things just like propelled, right? So he was in this first article and that article got a lot of press because it was in the Times and his name was there. And then a bunch of other journalists showed up and were like, can we get an interview with you? And um, I think there's also a little bit you got to think like St. Mary's is kind of the young kid on the block as far as med schools are. They don't have quite as much the endowment or the funds that Oxford has or Cambridge has. So I think they have to leverage and and kind of um, use these situations to the best of their advantage. So I kind of think the people at St. Mary's were like calling up journalists and be like, yeah, we have the guy who discovered that here. He's ours. He's part of this institution and we need more publicity gets more funding that way too yeah whereas i i feel like oxford and cambridge were like you know we don't need the funding we're here for academic excellence blah 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 and from what i could see is like flory would actually like try to write people and be like you know like i did that too and they're like yeah yeah just just shut up kid like we're we're on the alexander fleming train So I just think that's like super necessary. And I think like it also has to do with timing. And if it didn't happen in the war when so many things were going wrong and they needed a happy story, would it have been such a big deal? Would he have become a celebrity? I don't know. Yeah, probably not. Like you said, they need that happy story. Yeah. And I think like Alexander Fleming like played into the journalists so so well because he would never try to correct anyone and he would never try to change anyone's mind if they wanted to hyperbolize a story they could like tell this whole hyperbolized story and Fleming would be like yeah I guess that's what happened if that's what you're gonna print and so there's like this story um that I read that this guy like gave this speech about how Alexander Fleming saved Churchill's life not once but twice once from because he discovered penicillin and Churchill got sick and the second time when um, Alexander Fleming saved Churchill from drowning in a pond which is just absurd because they never grew up together they weren't even in the same country and I'm pretty sure Churchill is a number of years older than Fleming which they wouldn't be swimming in the same pond as as uh, schoolboys and Alexander Fleming was just like sure yep that happened just because he didn't want to like embarrass the person who was talking. He was just like, Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna refute that. Yeah, that's even adding to even more of a celebrity. He saved one of the most important people. Yeah. Well he didn't, but you know, once it's yeah. out in the media, then it just yeah, he just becomes this larger than life figure. Exactly. Well, I don't have anything else. Do you have anything else, John? No, I think we have said more than enough about the story of penicillin. Well, Microbial Nation, that's the end of our show. Wasn't that just bizarre? Tell us your thoughts. We'd like to know. 
as always, if you'd like to see any of our sources, you can find links to them in our show notes or check out all three parts of the blog series of penicillin. Which we will also link in our show notes. If you'd like to show us a little love, please consider donating to our Ko-Fi. Which we'll also link in the show notes. Or share the podcast with a friend. We hope you enjoyed listening and we hope you and your microbes are currently not being bombed by antibiotics. And if they are, we hope the antibiotics are helping. See you next time. Bye. Bye.